Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Dr. Sam Perry. He's a rhetorician and professor of history and communications at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. Now, this is a complex issue with a lot of connective tissue all over the place. This idea of the history of evangelicalism and its relationship or overlap with conspiracy theories in particular. So please bear with Sam and I as we try and keep a somewhat organized flow of conversation through all of this. I think it was helpful actually to talk with someone whose expertise is in rhetoric on a topic like this, because that ends up making Sam a kind of a historian of speeches, uh, polemical books and official statements. And for something like conspiracy theories, being able to compare those statements over time makes it easier and super interesting to trace the various lineages. The big takeaway from the conversation today is that conspiratorial thinking and and specifically conspiracy theories have had a significant place in evangelical thought for a long time. But I feel like this conversation has only made me even more curious to learn more about that and to dive deeper on certain strains like apocalypticism or spiritual warfare and how those relate psychologically to conspiracy theories. We don't get into much psychology, even though I had high hopes of getting there. Uh, in our conversation, but we get into a lot of history today. So let's dive in with uh, Sam. 
Dr. Sam Perry, thank you so much, man, for joining me today uh, in chatting with you a little bit here. We are the same age and we have very similar beard situations. I feel like I'm talking to really a, a long lost brother here over Zoom. <laughs> it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Although I will say your beard is more voluminous and, and beautiful than mine at the current moment. There's something about a red beard that just can't really be beaten by those of us. I mean, mine's kind of red, but yours is like Leif Erickson red, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, I've got a three-year-old, so there's a little bit more white in it than there used to be. So Yeah, I've got some of that in too. So anyway, Sam, we are going to cover kind of a lot of ground, uh, both historically and conceptually here, as well as bringing in some kind of anecdotes from listeners to this show, which I grabbed this morning before we spoke. So I'm going to try and keep us on task by by keeping us going in chronological order, more or less. And I found you because I asked people on Twitter if they knew anybody who had worked on specifically conspiracy theories and evangelical Christianity in America. And you had written this article on The Conversation, which I will link in the show notes, basically talking about that history. And so here we are linking it all the way up to Trump, but of course doesn't start with him. But before we get into it, I think we should make sure we know what we're talking about and other people know what we're talking about. So can you please define how you would use the term conspiracy theory, just so that things that are not in fact conspiracy theories are not you know, accidentally making their way into the mix. I think it's important to be careful around some of these terms. Yeah. You know, I think conspiracy theories operate on the premise that a, a lack of evidence or an absence of evidence is proof of something. So generally speaking, when we build arguments or we look for, you know, sound rhetorical strategy, we want to be able to arrange evidence and, and provide, you know, a solid argument that aligns with sort of classic rhetorical theory from Aristotle forward in terms of of building things and building proofs and, and looking at kind of the ways in which that proof operates within particular contexts. A real world example of that would be like if you watch any good film about journalism, like Spotlight or All the President's Men, anytime you have one of these editor figures going, hey, you don't have a source for this sentence. You don't have a source for this sentence. Those need to go out until you can prove each of those things. Basically, like you need to build this argument with a piece of evidence for every assertion all the way down, and then we will print it. That would be journalism at its best or philosophy at its best or any kind of research publishing at its best. You're you're motivating each thing. You're not just asserting things and looking for connections that might be there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I really focus on this with my students at every level from the freshman writing and composition courses I teach all the way to the graduate students that I teach you know, you want to structure things through data, warrant, and claim, you know, that old Stephen Toolman model in terms of you want the data to be connected to your claim through that warrant and through some form of reasoning that allows for the data points to also be consistent and in such a way that you're not uh, doing a lot of mental gymnastics to get from point A to point right. B to point C. So if that's one, that's one aspect of conspiracy theories in terms of how they present themselves is basically can be can be differentiated from more classical cases or arguments or claims. But I think it's also important that there's a lot of things that people say and and uh, there's a lot of examples people gave when I put up this Facebook post about 
can you give me examples of conspiracy theories from your evangelical childhood that are not actually conspiracy theories? They're just claims that have no evidence. A conspiracy theory has to involve some kind of conspiracy, right? Like there basically needs to be some sort of power or agent or group of agents doing something behind the scenes, like conspiring in some way that actually explains this thing that's out in the world, not some more prosaic standard explanation. So for instance, Star Wars is white magic may or may not be a conspiracy theory. If you think it is that way because George Lucas just happened to come across this thing and he didn't realize that he was actually putting magic and, and occult stuff in his show, then that wouldn't be a conspiracy theory. If you thought George Lucas really wants, or some people at the studio that do Star Wars really actually want to indoctrinate kids into occult practices and this is their vehicle then that would be a conspiracy theory. I think that's kind of one way of thinking about it. Yeah, that that would be the most profitable conspiracy theory ever. Indeed. Uh, the the singer of my band, uh, Sherwood, that I was in for 10 years, when he was growing up, he was not allowed to watch Star Wars because it was supposedly white magic. I, I had never even heard of white magic until he told me that conspiracy theory. Yeah, you know, I had I have some relatives that were the same way about Harry Potter. Right. But so Harry Potter is a good example, too. Like, it could just be that, like, it's about witches. Witches are bad. We don't do, you know, spells are bad. That could be a version of, like, so you can't read it. The more conspiracy version is J.K. Rowling is one of the elites that are pushing a satanic agenda. Right. That that moves it into conspiracy theory. Right. You need the Bond villain working in the background, you know, right. with the cat on the lap or a, a cabal of of actors who are motivated by something other than what it seems to be on its face. Yes. Right? Great. So there has to be an underlying motive, I think, is, is part of it. And, you know, I'm sure we'll get into this later in the conversation, but a lot of times those underlying motives provide cover for things that maybe the people proffering the conspiracy theory don't want to say out loud. Yes, I'm excited to get into that. Your article, you sum it up by saying, I argue that the rhetoric of conspiracy now used by Trump was foundational for many prominent figures of the Christian right, end quote. So that's that's kind of what we're getting at as we go through some of these historical examples is you are providing examples of times when conspiratorial thinking – and especially by like public figures, they all seem to be sort of some public figure or another, either a politician, a prominent evangelist or author, whatever, using this kind of conspiratorial thinking in a way that is that Trump's use of it is reminiscent of. And of course, it's not just Trump. Now in the aftermath of the Capitol insurrection, we are also all thinking about QAnon and how that has spread. That's a conspiracy theory about Trump that he doesn't really actively contribute to maybe in some sort of tertiary ways language that he has found works with his supporters that might be, you know, but he's not like, he's not really pushing QAnon in the way he's pushed. He pushed, for instance, Obama birtherism, where he's a straight up advocate for that conspiracy theory. But so let's start in the civil rights movement. So in your article, you are linking to sources as early as 1957, where there's an article in the New York Times where the NAACP is refuting common claims around the Little Rock Nine, those first kids to desegregate that school in Arkansas. 
So there was a conspiracy theory going around that – what was the conspiracy theory about these kids? You know, the, the paid protester thing is is mm. old hat, right? Yeah. So a lot of this was – you know, the, the outside agitator trope was big in the civil rights movement in terms of resistance to civil rights. Now, why the outside agitator was there, right? Martin Luther King provides a pretty excellent example or explanation of that in letter from Birmingham jail, where he says, you know, ostensibly, right? Like if we're talking about civil rights, then that concerns everybody. So you can't really be an outsider within that fight. But <laughs> there are no outsiders in the civil rights struggle. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, or the Angela Davis line, there's no such thing as someone else's war, which uh, was picked up by Jason Isbell, which I, I really enjoy. But Oh, he's the um, best. Yeah, uh, ostensibly what happens is there, there are these sort of newspaper campaigns, but also pamphlets. And we should come back to this. These pamphlets are really interesting because there are types of things that could go hand to hand really easily in terms of, spreading these theories or spreading these conspiracies. It's like social media. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, Remind me uh, when we get into the nineties, right? Because the tapes that were sold um, concerning Clinton's. Okay, um, great. But we'll do these. One of these things that happens is they can go hand to hand between people who are like-minded but it's also like some of these pamphlets would be, you know, not very well produced or would look kind of shady, right? And it's probably like your uncle that people stay away from at holidays hand, handing that stuff to you sometimes. So it's a little easier to discredit, right, mm-hmm. than some contemporary versions of conspiracies because the production value is not as great. Yeah, um, interesting. But that doesn't mean that it didn't spread far and wide ostensibly because – you know, you have white citizens councils that are operating that are very visible during the 1950s. You do have a proliferation of television and, you know, a more sort of a media emergence. The emergence of television during the civil rights movement is fascinating for a number of reasons. Right. One, you have people watching what's happening in Little Rock and you have people watching this sort of violence and you have people watching the resistance and you're seeing the very open and, and blatant racism and connections to the lost cause mythology of the Civil War with the Confederate battle flag. You get the surge in people building Confederate monuments. So you have this sort of mindset emerging in relation to these civil rights advocates and activists, and then just people like the Little Rock Nine who are trying to live their lives and make it a better situation for themselves. But the whole country is watching it in real time in a way that did not happen during the 1930s, say. Right during the height of the anti-lynching movement, when you've got the NAACP publishing pamphlets, you've got newspapers, the black press is really accelerating their anti-lynching campaign. The communist party is involved in all this stuff. Yeah. But people only see photographs, right? They only see these sort of secondhand accounts. And I think one of the reasons that conspiracy theories become a way to talk about race and racism specifically is because all of a sudden there has to be this broader explanation for why things would be happening the way that they are. People are trying to explain what they're seeing on television. Right. So you see a photo of a lynched black man hanging from a tree and you think that is awful, but it's one person. Any any combo of factors of a couple bad eggs getting together and – lynching a guy would explain it 
but you watch a 20-minute news segment on 250 white people yelling at these kids, these young black girls as they try and walk up the steps, all other things equal, you just have a lot more data to make sense out of if you're watching something that is surprising you in some sense. Right. And, you know, coming back to the the lynching example for just a moment, right? Walter White, who is the head of the NAACP, uh, not the Breaking Bad Walter. Yeah, that's really unfortunate. (laughs) Yeah. um, You know, said that one of his primary concerns was that, you know, a white person reading the newspaper could read of, of a black pe- person being burned alive and then turn to the sports page and keep going and drinking their coffee. Yeah. So, you know, the, the data points were being aggregated at that time, but the NAACP circulating pamphlets and showing, look, we have record of this many thousands of people being lynched. I mean, the Tuskegee Institute estimates that somewhere around 5,000 people were lynched. And that's, that's what we know of. Yeah. Right. Um, right. But white supremacy at that point is so hegemonic, is so prevalent that a lot of people can move past it or say, mm. this is a thing that only happens in the South. Right. It didn't only happen in the South. Mm. Uh, in fact, one of the only places that has built a sort of public memorial is, is in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, mm. prior to the EJI and the, the lynching museum that's now in Montgomery, Alabama. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting off on a well, tangent. Well, no, it's fine. We're gonna we we need to move forward timing chronologically just because there's so much to cover. But suffice to say, these conspiracy theories existed back then. Outside agitators, paid protesters, basically. Right. Let's let's fast forward to 1980. So now we are in really what's beginning to be the heyday of the Christian right, the moral majority. And here's a quote from Jerry Falwell Sr. In 1980, where we will recognize some of this verbiage, quote, the more uh, he, he uses this phrase, the moral stance that made America great. I didn't actually write the whole quote down, <laughs> but it's basically like secularism is, you know, creeping in and destroying the moral stance that made America great. So the idea that America was great, it had better morals now with creeping secularism, etc., it has worse morals, and it's a, it's a battle, it's a cultural battle for America's soul between God-fearing conservatives who know what real biblical morality is and secular forces. What do you want to say about, about this uh, moment in 1980? Yeah, well, I mean, Falwell is such an interesting character for any number of reasons. But just prior to this, in, in 1979, you have uh, a guy named Paul Weirich who is the founder of the Heritage Foundation. Alec uh, is a conservative lobbyist, really kind of a firebrand, right? He brings all of these evangelicals together, including Falwell in the late 70s, as they're kind of looking for a way to revive interest in their churches, in a way to kind of build their brand out as it becomes known in the early 80s. Because a lot of the resistance, actually, that, that to desegregation had come from churches like Falwell's and, and Falwell's, the Falwell family had a sort of segregation academy. Right. So you see one of the cause celebrates or one of the, the primary causes that is espoused 
within what we would now kind of recognize as a Christian right before it coalesces is resistance to school desegregation, right? Uh, resistance to racial integration more broadly. This is why you see at universities like Bob Jones, you know, the, the famous lawsuit in terms of prohib- uh, prohibition of interracial dating. Um, yeah. I think that is, that's the event that initially creates the religious right. I think that's 73, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and there's a number of cases that end up kind of progressing through. But one of but the things it's also I always I always remind people because it's a little too easy to say the religious right started around racism, which is true, but most of our parents didn't get involved in it until they switched to abortion. And there is I'm not saying that there's no relationship there and there is plenty of racism in the mix of the kind of evangelical upbringing I, I got, but sometimes a little, a little sloppy work there is, is done to then paint the whole thing as about racism uh, explicitly yeah. when it was only explicitly about racism for a little while, didn't grow very much. And they switched their branding up basically and made it about abortion and gay rights. And that worked a lot better. So yeah, <laughs> now yeah, you, yeah. that might not be that much better to, you know, to you personally or whatever, but it's worth noting that in the historical record. Yeah. I, I certainly don't want to oversimplify and say that, you know, evangelicalism or fundamentalism is about racism solely. I mean, there are, right. or, or even intrinsically. Um, yeah. Now, if you look at denominational histories and why there are so many denominations and why some split out, some of that does all go some of it does, yeah. to a defense of slavery. However, um, but I also go to Episcopal Church, and uh-huh. that was started out so that a king could and get divorced. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, God can redeem things that start for bad reasons, but it is also, yeah. you know, we have to take ownership over the history at the same. Yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. My pastor growing up at a Presbyterian church, one of his favorite things to say is, uh, "You want a good fight? Join a church." Yeah, <laughs> And it wasn't just like you were fighting the good fight. It was like if you got involved in a church, you were going to be in, involved in, in splintering and fragmenting of the church because yeah. people are, are very invested in the way that they think the church should operate. Right. But if we go back to Weirich for a minute, um, yeah. Randall Balmer, who's a religious historian, and other folks really point to Weirich doing the work of organizing all these folks and putting them together and giving them the language of the silent majority moral and the moral majority, those sorts of things. And, and Balmer even, even says, right, that he, he can pinpoint the meeting at which abortion becomes the issue. Yeah. And, and that's fairly believable because as late as 1973, you've got people like W.A. Criswell who was the leader at First Baptist Dallas, had been the pre- president of the Southern Baptist Convention, coming out and saying, hey, you know, while we certainly do not encourage abortion, we believe that the job of the church is to take care of children once they're here. Right. Which is a very different stance than what you hear from Southern Baptists even 15 years later. Yeah. Um, and Criswell is a guy we should come back to, especially when we talk about Reagan and the open support that is exchanged between the Christian right and, and Reagan really, I think, changes the political environment quite a bit in terms of the ways in which religious expression and political expression become blended in such a way that they're, they're kind of difficult to separate and they become even shibboleths or like tests 
for right. whether or not you can be part of the party or be part of a church. Well, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that is a good bridge because that's the next p- talking point here is is the Reagan marriage. But I also want to say that's so interesting because something that's true today that there is like just rampant empirical evidence for. And if you look, you'll notice it that sociopolitical identity is now the main thing and religious identity, even theological belief claims, whatever are downstream from sociopolitical identity. And what you're describing around the late seventies, early eighties, as the moral majority coalesces around abortion gets behind Reagan they win with Reagan, is maybe the beginnings of this particular form anyway, of starting to blur those lines, and maybe they're kind of, they're equals. So in 73, if you could be a Southern Baptist and not care about abortion, then at bare minimum, we can say, on the issue of abortion, your political view was not upstream of your religious view. At, they're at least separate that there could be a mixing around and people could hold different views. Come 1983, if you're a Southern Baptist, like it's set. So now they're close. And then now we're in a point today, and I don't know how you would measure the contours of this over time. Maybe somebody does. But now it seems like we're full on politics and sociopolitical identity and everything else is downstream of that. It's just interesting to kind of see this as maybe a step in that direction. Yeah, I mean, you see a couple of things here that I think help explain that too, right? In 1979, you get the Chicago Statement, which yes, is a statement on biblical, biblical inerrancy. inerrancy. Yeah. yeah. So inerrancy and literalism really come into fashion for a lot of the people on the Christian right in this, within the same frame that we're talking about. I have right? never heard these two put together. That's so interesting. But that becomes – those types of things become litmus tests, right, right. for – whether or not you are doing your religion properly, right? They still are. I was just having a conversation yesterday with friends about statements of faith at various universities and institutions that have to be signed. And uh, one of my friends said, she'll remain nameless for now, but she said, my institution, we tell new hires, this is a formality. Nobody believes this. Sign it. I mean, it's now gotten, but this is where they become really important in this particular subculture, which continues to this day in evangelical institutions. Right, right. And you're seeing it come alongside with like Francis Schaeffer and sort of work of building a Christian worldview that is in in opposition or at least that works apart from secularism. Yeah. Around the same time, you get the conservative takeover of the Southern Baptist Convention that's led by Paige Patterson and Paul Pressler. And the SBC takeover is, is fully complete by 91. That body changes so much within that decade because of a, a real conscious political strategy yeah. to sort of pack leadership positions. And then that that kind of ties into what your friend was talking about because it's, it's Patterson and some of these other folks, right, that really get interested in controlling religious universities or universities with religious affiliations in a way that brings them kind of away from liberal arts institutions or sort of small things that are connected to a church being more sort of ideologically in line, potentially with a governing body of particular religious institution. Yeah. And just in passing, 
you might be wondering how in 2021 it could still matter that a professor or something signs a statement of faith about the rapture and healing prayer or whatever and baptism by immersion. These are real examples, by the way. And the, and the answer, part of the answer is the purse strings are still controlled by people that this is their generation. This is the generation where they came of age, came to maturity as adults and started throwing their political weight around or in, in, engaged in the leaders that were throwing their weight around, whatever, however you want to frame that. But so to get into Reagan here in your article, <laughs> I learned something that I had never learned before that Tim LaHaye, co-author of the Left Behind series, yeah. he's the uh, theological half. If you, I probably should use theological in scare quotes because he's such a awful theologian, but he, um, <laughs> he's the theolo- theological half of the Left Behind writing team. He believed in the Illuminati and he claimed that the Illuminati, and I'm not going to, we don't need to go into, people have heard this before. It's some secret cabal of very powerful people who run the world, that they were thwarted in their attempts at establishing a new world order because Christians organized and voted for Ronald Reagan. He said this. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, LaHaye, you know, he is the namesake for a school of eschatology and liberty. I know. It's so (laughs) sad. You don't know this, Sam. Uh, Listeners know, so we don't have to spend time on it. But I've done some loose qualitative research on end times teaching and mental health problems for this podcast. That's my own background. Um, And eventually I'd like to do some proper peer-reviewed stuff on it around spiritual and religious abuse and eschatology. Uh, so I have done a lot of reading and learning in this field, you know, compared to most people. And so this was a particularly fun one for me to come across in your article. Yeah, yeah. I want to get a T-shirt that just says eschatology is bad politics. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm sure it'd be a big seller. But yeah, the the LaHaye stuff is really interesting. His writing partner, you know, came out in this interview and basically said, you know, if I didn't go back and doctor everything up, we'd be talking about the Trilateral Commission and the Bilderbergers and, you know, all of these sorts of essentially anything that could be attached to globalism or a theory of global cosmopolitanism in terms mm. of like global cooperation could then be sort of put into the frame of a new world order. Right. So but what you're saying is Jerry B. Jenkins went on the record saying, my co-author Tim LaHaye is obsessed with any example of globalization and, and that being a sign of a Illuminati-fueled new world order. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to read for tone in these printed interviews, but he sure. seems like he's almost like just kind of joking around with a reporter like, hey, isn't this funny? And on one level, like, yeah, you can be dismissive of it, but the thing about conspiracy theories that I've I think we've seen is that you can easily dismiss them as fringe and more, they can accumulate followers, accumulate sort of traction. They can accumulate more narrative cohesion that brings more people in. And by the time that you, you get done just, you know, shaking your head at people that that say these things, you turn around and like, there's a substantive chunk of the population that believes you know, that Barack Obama is the Antichrist, right? Like 12% of people at, at one point in the middle, I think it was 
2008, 2010, a survey done said, you know, 12% of Americans believe that about the sitting president. That he was the Antichrist? Yes. That is bonkers. That is such a high percentage. It's a, it's a, it's a lot of people, uh, right? So, I mean. So, let's, let's say that, that's, that almost all of that is coming from Republicans. That would be something like 25% of Republicans believe that the president of the United States is the antichrist of the book of revelation. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to pin it all on party of faith, no, but I mean, whatever. Yeah. There are a strong 20 plus. Yeah. And if you go back to LaHaye and you think about how popular this, this book series was, right? I mean, he was getting seven figure advances on these books. Oh, they sold, I think they've sold 98 million copies. If I'm remembering my figure, right. Right. That's insane. So- even if the cha- that's five and- Michael Jackson thrillers four, yeah, which is yeah, which was at one point the highest selling album of all time. Four yeah, thrillers, I mean, even if you change the names or change the organizations involved in a piece of fiction, if you know that the root material is actually to make this sort of connective tissue. Uh, that provides for, I would even go so far as to call it a hermeneutic, right? Mm. In terms of looking at the world, that you are providing a narrative inroad for literally millions of people to start seeing the same things, you know, the way that you do with your decoder ring. And yep, even if exactly. that decoder ring looks like it came out of a bad box of cereal, <laughs> there's still plenty of people that are willing to entertain it. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. and and Lahey's not alone, right? Well, let's that's perfect. Let, let's get to ninety one here. We got Pat Robertson. Yeah, people might younger folks may not be as familiar with Pat Robertson, but he was a pretty standard character on the scene in the nineties and two thousands in conservative politics. I do think that he he's still around. Is he still around? Did he, yeah. did he pass away? Yeah, no, he's he's still around. In fact, he in the lead up to the election, he was prophesying that yes. not only would Trump win the election, but that it would essentially be the beginning of the end because I think an asteroid was going to hit the Earth. Yeah, that's right. He's, I think he's still got a TBN show maybe or something like that. He was genius in terms of the way that he set up his TV networks, that he retained the rights to the 700 Club even after he sold sold his networks and with with some sort of contractual clause that the 700 club would continue to be aired. Oh my gosh, like no matter what basically. Right. So he has that that platform, that platform. is printed, right? It it is there so and I remember He's got 700 club tenure, you might say. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, in, yeah. So in 91, he he publishes a book called The New World Order. I didn't know about this either. And his book claims that the Illuminati, quote, have spread their tentacles founding or infiltrating such diverse organizations as the Masons, the Communist Party, the English Roundtable, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Federal Reserve Board, the Trilateral Commission, and the New Age Movement, end quote. I think that quote is actually from a an article, yours or somebody else's. That's not a line from the book, to be clear, but this is from reporting on the book. So, no. so Pat Robertson believes in the New World Order. In 91, yeah. and it, it's briefly on the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah, yeah. And all the while in the background of this, too, you have 
the normalization, I mean, I would, I would go so far as to say normalization of dominion theology and Christian reconstruction, which is also playing into Robertson. You'll need to explain those terms for us. Okay. Uh, I, I want to make clear that Robertson and LaHaye are not necessarily Christian reconstructionists, but Christian reconstructionists provide a certain language. And this is a guy named Bruce's John Rush Dooney. Uh, I'm not sure how familiar you are with. Uh, I'm not. No. Okay. So he writes a book in 1973 that is this massive tome that is an interpretation of biblical law. And he says ostensibly that anything that is not directly refuted in the New Testament in terms of anything in the Old Testament that was not directly refuted in the New Testament still stands as biblical law. All right. That the model for government is ostensibly the family unit, which is very familiar. If you, you know, are entrenched in evangelical culture, you you've heard that argument. So while he is a fundamentalist and they tend to be a bit, separated, right, from some of the mainstream culture, a lot of the ideas within Dominion theology and Christian Reconstruction get picked up into to language of the Christian right. And his then son-in-law, a guy named Rushduni's son-in-law, a guy named Gary North, writes this book about conspiracy theories being built into Christianity, essentially, right, and saying, right, that one of the principles of Christian reconstruction is a belief in these conspiracy theories about the council on foreign relations, about the banking industry and about how all of these sorts of organizations and entities are coming together to suppress Christianity and the practice of Christianity. And there's a lot of talk of like destroying the family unit, all of these sorts of things, but these folks are publishing at just an insane rate. I mean, they're turning out books left and right. And some of those books are ending up being, you know, they get taught in seminaries, right? Yeah. Some of those books circulate into the culture that you're talking about here. So Rush Juni was one of the sort of like professional expert witnesses for the Christian right in homeschooling trials. So like Leaper versus Texas, which is... I don't think I know anything about these homeschooling trials. Yeah, this is taking us a little bit away from conspiracy. I know, but 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 this is the stuff that a lot of listeners grew up with. And so it's, we gotta, we gotta do it. Yeah. uh, So ostensibly one of the ways that the, if we, we can actually tie this back, that the desegregation push permutates or the, the resistance to desegregation permutates is a broader institution of homeschooling, which had been very, very uncommon. Right. Um, and it really has this surge in the late eighties and and through the nineties in terms of you look at the the growth of homeschooling. Rush Juni is figured in many circles as the father of the homeschooling movement. I'm going to need to do an episode on homeschooling. I'm realizing now. So yeah, let's talk later and, and about if you have any recommendations for who I should interview, that's a specifically an expert on that movement, but Okay, so let, let's just – let me see if I can make this connection quickly. You, you fix anything that's wrong so that we can move on. But basically, there's a through line from desegregation to homeschooling because it's about sort of the government telling us what we can and can't do with our education. And that starts about race, but it would include other sort of moral values. And I'm sure it's about evolution and you know it's 
it's a 50-year hangover from the Scopes Monkey Trial and all of that stuff. And so this guy writes this book and becomes this kind of expert called upon by the evangelical lawyers or the lawyers for the evangelical clients in these cases about the rights of homeschoolers or something like that. That's correct. Because the, the essentially the argument of argumentative turn, and you see this even with like anti-vax stuff is that like, if you are restricting the ability to educate your children, you're uh, restricting the ability to practice your religion. Okay. Got it. Yeah. That, that training them up, them up in the way they should go is part of one's religion. And so it's a, it's a freedom of religion issue to be able to homeschool and basically teach them whatever you want to teach them, which I, legally, I think I buy that. I don't actually want the government telling me I can't homeschool, even though I don't plan on it myself. So, okay, we're in the 90s. And one more bit of history from you. And then I think we're going to take a little detour into anecdotes from listeners' lives, which I fielded just a couple hours before we spoke this morning and get your thoughts on some of those. So you said to bring up these tapes that circulated about the Clintons and to connect that back to the pamphlets and then these days, social media. Yeah. So the, the whitewater scandal, right? A bunch of things in terms of the Clintons business dealings, there were these VHS tapes that were essentially like hit piece type journalism stuff. And a lot of, and, and, and quintessentially conspiracy theories. I mean, yeah. people have been trying to make this stuff to stick to the Clintons for 30, 40 years. Is this uh, the beginnings of the Vince Foster murder yeah. out, uh, conspiracy stuff? Right, right. Okay. So this is this is where we're at on that. But one of the places where a wider point of distribution began for those videos was that Jerry Falwell sold them on his website. Interesting. Uh, or sold them, you know, through his... I don't know if they would have had a, a full functioning website at that point, but they were selling Falwell essentially was selling the tapes as a third party vendor. So one thing I want to connect here, and this goes back to stuff that I have been covering it or chatting with people who have been covering it for five years now through my first podcast, which was called depolarize is this idea of parallel institutions within evangelicalism that yeah. there there's a groundswell. There are enough evangelicals, by the 80s in America, and they are distrustful enough of secular society that they are able – they have the capital and the market to support a parallel version of like every kind of media and educational institution that exists elsewhere. You've got Christian art. You've got your Thomas Kincaid's. You've got Christian movies, Christian music, Christian books, Christian bookstores. Now you've got – Pat. you have these – Falwell included a radio too. Christian radio. That's huge. And that actually predates some of the other stuff, right? Yeah. 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 Salem media operates a lot of these radio stations. They have a huge listenership share in the top 25 markets in the United States. Hmm. I yeah. mean, so you're talking about, and that's to this day, Salem is the one that owns all yeah. the Trump positive, uh, a lot of those political shows and stuff like that. Yeah. Hugh Hewitt, Charlie Kirk, Dennis Prager, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and they also own a book imprint called Regnery Press, which is like one half of the house is like Christian self-help and the other half is like conspiracy theory books. Wow. So there's this weird melding of 
you could start on the site looking for self-improvement books and, and really end up, you know, reading about how the deep state is trying to take down Christian values or, you know, people are coming for Bibles. That's so interesting because that seems to parallel the way that some of the non-religious like wellness and Instagram influencer scenes get penetrated by conspiracy theories as well. That's yeah. that's interesting. I feel like a conspiracy theorist myself making all of these connections, but it's not a conspiracy theory to say that the ownership group of Salem Media or whatever they're called has beliefs about the world and they write the checks for all their radio hosts. I mean, I, M- Michael Medved was fired by Salem for not caving to Trump. He was one of the top five or so uh, most popular conservative talk media hosts, and he's down to very few now because he got dropped by Salem. I mean, that's not a conspiracy theory. That's just you defy the boss, you get fired. And the boss went all in on Trump because they recognized that, I mean, for whatever reason they thought, maybe money, maybe their individual beliefs, maybe they, if if you're right, I mean, taking into account what you just said about there is a kind of conspiratorial lens to their publishing company anyway, then they might be exactly the kind of Christians or Christian adjacent people that Trump's rhetoric, which eventually will get to Trump captured so strongly, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I think Trump uses some of that language, but I mean, it certainly provides frames, right? It provides ways to interpret situations where it's easily, you know, you can turn it around and saying, this is part of our fight. You know, this, and it's not just Salem to be clear, like Joseph Farah ran WND, which was like the chief birther site during the Obama administration had millions of unique viewers a day, right? Like, I mean, the traffic was insane, but they started their own publishing house. And part of the publishing house was biblical commentaries by people like Farah himself, right? You know, I, one of them is like the presence of Jesus in the Old Testament type commentary thing. Lee Corsi, uh, or Jerome Corsi, excuse me, who was wrapped up in the Roger Stone trial. Jerome Corsi did the John Kerry Swift boat thing, but he also was a, a big part of the birther thing. One of the books that he publishes with WND is called Shroud Codex, and it's like a Dan Brown-esque yeah. Da Vinci. Something code. about the Shroud of Turin. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I could fill in the gaps. But so I guess that my broader point was just these par- – like if we want to ask the question, how have conspiracy theories so infiltrated a certain segment of evangelicalism? One of the mechanisms that is part of that answer is these parallel institutions. They provide the distribution of the materials basically. Yeah, in my, in my own work, what I'm – and a project that I'm working on now, what the way that I refer to this is that they have a self-sustaining media ecology. Yes. Great. And that that media ecology essentially is not only self-sustaining, but in many cases, self-sealing. Right. So I can remember when I was a teenager, I, you know, I went to like a, a youth retreat with my church. And one of the things, you know, it was like a, a two day lock-in thing where they had a concert and sold CDs and stuff. But one of the things that they had was this video, you know, encouraging us to throw out our secular music and only listen to Christian music. And it's like, yeah, of course. And I was like, man, this seems 
potentially very self-serving and problematic. You know, even like teenage me was like, uh, I'm a little skeptical of, of saying like, this is the only way that I can do this. or this is the only way that I can find entertainment is to, to like come to these, these folks. Especially when, yeah, especially when you have a whole catalog of alternative CDs that I could purchase from you at $17.99 a pop. Right, right, right. It's very convenient. Well, that's, that is a perfect segue into getting into some of these comments from listeners about conspiracy theories that they grew up with, those who grew up evangelical. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll hit that. You guys like this music I pulled out for today's episode? Feels like a Dan Brown, you know, Angels and Demons or Da Vinci Code score. Um, anyway, here I am to talk about the Patreon campaign. There is a Patreon campaign. This is how you support, you have permission financially if you'd like to do that. It's also how you get involved in the online community. So we have a Facebook group that is for patrons only. It's about 600 members strong now. And it is uh, an awesome little community, and it includes a bunch of people's spouses and significant others. By the way, if your spouse would like to join, just shoot me a note on Facebook um, or email me and let me know that they are asking to join, and that will get approved. Anyway, uh, you also, if you're a patron, you get two exclusive episodes per month. And the one that's coming out two days from now on Wednesday is a conversation with Alyssa Wilkinson. She is the film editor at Vox Media. And we talk about Christian movie industry, talk about her time uh, working as a film critic at Christianity Today, how that's different than working at Vox. And we get into a couple filmmakers and the specific way that they use faith in their films, Martin Scorsese and Terrence Malick. So if that sounds interesting to you and you are not a patron yet, it would be a good time to sign up. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. The link is also in the show notes. Okay, back to my interesting, conspiratorial, suspenseful conversation with Sam Perry. Well, Sam, what I'm realizing having talked to you now for, you know, 50 minutes or so is that you are a historical treasure trove. So I think what I would like to do here is uh, read out some of these examples that people gave. And then if you've got some historical context for them, especially if it can connect back to anything we've been talking about, I think that will help us to contextualize, you know, our own experiences. It's worth noting, I posted this question to the Facebook group. Uh, which has about 600 people on it. And I said, what specific conspiracy theories do you remember from your childhood? And I got a hundred comments in 90 minutes out of 600 people. <laughs> and most of those comments contained multiple conspiracy theories. So this is, this is a very abbreviated list, but I just think that is worth noting as itself a piece of data in this conversation. So let's start with the satanic panic. So this is, Big in the 80s and 90s, some examples are rock music is satanic. You know, as early as Zeppelin, you say if you play this backwards, it says Worship Satan or whatever. Star Wars as White Magic, I mentioned earlier. Dungeons and Dragons is actually satanic stuff packaged for kids. Yeah, um, Stranger Things is a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you have any context for the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s? Oh, uh, Wow. Other than, you know, the Salem witch trials and, you know, all that kind of, 
it must be Satan at work in our enemies kind of thinking that has permeated, you know, certain strands of Christianity from the beginning. Yeah, my friend Josh Gunn did his dissertation and a chunk of his first book on the satanic panic. But, you know, one of the things that happens, one of the ways that I think about this is that you see, right, like the family values thing become a key term for both sides or both parties, right? Both Democrats and Republicans are constantly talking about family values. Hmm. Now, that, that idea of family values is a really movable signifier, right? There's there's a lot of things that you could imbue as family values, right? Like my family likes going to the museum and the library. We like going to the zoo Are those family values because we're spending time with one another. Right. Right. Or is it like a really liturgical and theological approach to like, this is how we measure out our daily life. And this is the way that we kind of provide order. Right. Right. Um, and what's included in the definition of family, like not gay people, for instance. So that can never possibly be family values. That's a dog whistle version of it, which, of course, a gay family has values. But, of course, those in the know know that they can't possibly have family values. Well, that's why, you know, that's why you get something called the Defense of Marriage Act, right? Like right. as if somehow the institution is going to be damaged by inclusion and affirmation as opposed to – you know, we can look at divorce rates amongst heterosexual couples and any number of other things. And, you know, one of the things that helps this move into the zeitgeist is you have these like weird public grandstanding of like musicians, you know, calling people before Congress. And you got like on one side, people are going like Frank Zapp is the best because he's defending free speech. And on the other side, you're like, you know, you got people going like, look at this weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> so, so again, television. Like, Right, right. So I think some of it just because the panic is is sort of whipped into a frenzy in this case because it's easy enough to center political discussions on it without having to do a whole lot, right? Like putting warning labels on CDs doesn't do much Hmm. in terms of changing the culture. But like in terms of scoring political points, it's something that either party can tap into pretty quickly and say, well, of course we're for family values. We think families are great. Right. Um, you know, I, I know less of the the ins and outs and nuances of the satanic panic more than the sort of political discourse that I see as the backdrop for it. Let's uh, let's move on to the new age movement worries, and specifically, it's interesting, like Fern Gully and Captain Planet, and some of these like environmental shows get get brought into that. This this seems like an example where there is definitely a a political agenda that is, you know, maybe just serendipitously married to this cultural fear. New age and satanic stuff often get blended together in some of this discourse. What do you know about that movement? Yeah, so it's sort of fascinating, right? Especially on the environmentalism end of things because Nixon starts the EPA, right? Conservatism was tied up in conservation at, at one point. Teddy Roosevelt started the federal national parks, right? Right, yeah. right. So Conserve um, land, right. Yeah, and he's very conservative, yeah. Right. So you see that. And I actually think this – we can circle back to part of what we were talking about earlier. This is one of the sort of things that gets picked up or a narrative that is easily locatable within Dominion theology and Christian Reconstruction where part of dominion is having dominion over the earth, right? Right. And using the resources. 
So if, you, if somebody is saying we must conserve resources and we have to do so because of a love for the earth and because of the ways in which, and, and by the way, all of those efforts have to take place through non-government organizations as well as mul- multiple governments working together because of the way that environmentalism works or the way that conservation works. One government doing something, you know, is going to affect the way that the other government is doing something. Well, that's why something like the Paris Climate Accords, right, like Trump can can trash those in part because it's seen as this like other countries are telling us what to do. But right. also it's it ties back into that previous distrust of multi-government or globalist sort of initiatives on a broader scale, right? Right. So like if you look at something like the Trilateral Commission where there's, you know, a bunch of business leaders and a bunch of entities working together and they would have gotten together and worked together anyway because, you know, they're rich and powerful people and that's what rich and powerful people do or they're heads of state and heads of state work with other heads, other of, heads state. of state. Right. Yeah. Um, seems like their job. Yeah. 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 So I think some of those conspiracy theories or the sort of push back against that is tied into what we were talking about earlier in terms of like, we were talking about Robertson and LaHaye and the Illuminati and the council on foreign relations and all of these sorts of things, because the environmentalist movement became a global movement. It was easier to be conscripted into those sorts of conspiracy theories. That makes sense. Another one here that came up for, with multiple listeners was that public schools were a tool of the government to dumb down Americans so that we could be more easily controlled by them. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So I I am going to tie that one back to the resistance, specifically the resistance to desegregation and integration. Great. Because it's been easy. Public school systems have been an easy target for folks since then. But the permutations of the argument in order to kind of like keep bashing public schools, obviously they're not going to say straight out desegregation or mixing of cultures or mixing of values within a public setting then becomes this way that deteriorates religious value. Right. right. So people the, who are the animating fear of the of the white parent, which is the same as the animating fear of the contemporary upper middle class white or otherwise parent is that these poor black or these poor, more likely to be non-white kids are going to be a bad influence and corrupt my child. That's the, that's the actual fear that's motivating. You can't say that you couldn't say it then you can't say it today. So you have to say something else. There's a, a Lee water, a Lee Atwater quotation, you know, and Atwater was a chief Republican political strategists along with Manafort and some others. But Atwater essentially gives this CBS interview that doesn't get aired, but it gets reported on later, where he says, you know, at first you can start out and he just drops the N-word several times, just yelling that. And that gets people riled up. And he says, but then he gets to the point that you can't do that. So you start talking about busing. He's like, and then, you know, you start getting everybody riled up by talking about busing. And then that doesn't work. Or we have to be careful about how we use that. So then we start talking about housing and other economic policies. And he's just laying this this playbook out in this interview, right? And it's just one of those things where you're like, he just just gave away the code, 
right? So I see that in terms of the conspiratorial language that you're talking about there as being, you know, kind of coded or not so subtly coded in terms of race, but there's a great This American Life NPR episode on, it's called The Problem We All Live With on school segregation. And it specifically looks at the segregation issues in Ferguson and throughout St. Louis through the frame of uh, Michael Brown's killing. And it is, it is heartbreaking to listen to. I will put a link to that in the show notes for people who want to have their hearts broken. <laughs> that's, a, that's a dark way to say it, but sometimes <laughs> we need to have our hearts broken. Yeah. In, you know, uh, as a rhetorician, you know, that's my training. We, we often get accused of just being people that like to ruin things. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, uh, the next one is, and I don't, you know, we, I don't know how much you want to get into this and it's also not clear to me. This is another issue where sometimes it's conspiracy theory and sometimes it's not, but it's all this stuff around the Catholic church from Protestants. So the Catholic church is actually the whore of Babylon in revelation. Uh, various popes have been believed to be the antichrist sort of at any one time. Plenty of people think the current pope is the antichrist. This one, you know, it's tied up with anti-immigration and anti-Semitism in the United States. It's also sometimes conspiratorial because sometimes the Pope is described as sort of in the Illuminati or working with some of these very powerful figures. Other times it seems to not really be so much a conspiracy theory as it is just anti-Catholic sentiment amongst, you know, they're the out group and we're the in group. But can you give us some some context for that? Yeah, I mean, I don't have a whole lot on that. I mean, I, I would point out anecdotally, one of the people that we mentioned earlier is W.A. Criswell. And Criswell comes out hard against John F. Kennedy when Kennedy is running for president because he says that uh, Kennedy essentially can't be trusted because he, as a Catholic, he'll be an agent of the Pope. Yes, this, is, this was a common conspiracy theory argument made against JFK was that the Pope will be in control of the United States government because – any Catholic has to be subject to the Pope, which is not how Catholicism works. So somebody asked Criswell about that in the 1980s, given his very cozy relationship with Ronald Reagan. And his response in this interview was that the separation of church and state is the figment of some infidel's imagination. Wow. And so that's straight up theocracy. He wants a theocracy. Right. Well, yeah. And, and the but the Pope is the wrong God for the theocracy or whatever. The Catholic Church is the wrong. Yeah. Church. I mean, I like I say, I, that relationship is not one that I've studied well enough to, to be able yeah. to speak. But theocracy is a uh, is. Um, and by the way, if you don't know that term, it's the idea of like rule by God, essentially. Or, you know, Christian Reconstructionism is a theocratic at least in flavor in that these laws bind us today and should be our laws. Basically Sharia law is theocratic. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly the Christian reconstruction and dominion folks, that's the premise. I mean, it was, it's often called theonomy. Theonomy uh, you know. is it a, yeah, a nicer yeah, yeah. term for it or is, what's the difference between theocracy and theonomy? Uh, functionally, I wouldn't know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Uh, let's, I, mean, let's I think keep, it's just a choice of vocabulary. Sure. Let's um let's keep rolling here. So this the gay agenda, this one came up a bunch in the comments, and I remember it growing up evangelical. There there are ways of talking about the gay agenda conspiracy theory that are conspiratorial, and there are ways of talking about it that are true and not conspiratorial. The true way is like 
a bunch of people who work in Hollywood are liberal and some higher proportion of them are gay, but also the non-gay ones basically agree with their gay friends that gay relationships should in fact be normalized. And a good way to normalize them is through television and movies. I mean, this is, you can read interviews with Jonathan Demme about Philadelphia. He made that film after Silence of the Lambs came out and was perceived to be like anti-trans basically and homophobic. And he was like, man, I didn't mean for it to be that way. I myself am an affirming liberal person. I'm going to make it up to the gay community. And he makes Philadelphia, which is arguably moves the needle as much as Will and Grace did, you know, 10 years later in terms of public opinion, having Tom Hanks, America's sweetheart, play an HIV addled gay man. And like that part of it is true. And like in that sense, I'm on board with the gay agenda. But there's a conspiratorial version which is basically that there is like, again, a cabal of powerful gay people or gay, I don't know, Satanist people who like gay people or whatever, who are pulling the strings in a special way behind Hollywood to sort of poison the family or something like that, right? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting in some ways because you see the permutations of the way that the feminist movement was attacked. Right. So like the sort of Phyllis Schlafly line of argument about destroying the structure and the fabric of the family and the culture of what makes America great is this nuclear family unit. Yeah. Sort of mapped onto anti LBGTQ rhetorics. And that's not surprising because discriminatory rhetorics generally take a, take on a lot of the same forms, structures, tropes, right? Because it is in fact, discriminatory language. So you see that, you know, where sort of feminism was this conspiracy to take down, take down the United States and take down the, the culture and structure as we know it. And there was often a conflation with feminism and, and being a lesbian or being a, a gay woman. Right. Right. So it's not that is a longstanding, really insidious kind of trope to say that somehow some other person's relationship is going to be destructive of, of heteronormative relationships. Right. So I, you know, in terms of that mode and line of discrimination, it's not difficult to make it conspiratorial because if you start going around and and just essentially ascribing intent, right. If intent, as you, as you were saying, is sort of like a normalization or to provide representation, that's very different than saying that people are trying to indoctrinate children. Right. Um, Which, you know, it it wouldn't take you long on Facebook or Twitter or somewhere to get to the, these are the organizations that are attempting to indoctrinate our children. Right. Uh, You know, including Disney and all of, you know, all of the Disney came up a bunch. Yeah. But when you, when you make fireproof, you are making a film with a moral story that you believe in and that you hope will influence the people who watch your film. That's no different than Philadelphia. It's just that you disagree with the moral in Philadelphia and you agree with the moral in Fireproof or Facing the Giants. Yeah. You know, where that's I was, not like, a conspiracy. That is just making art with a message. And you might disagree with that message. And that's fine. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There's certainly a difference between disagreeing or, or holding, holding in kind something different. Right. You know, I live in, in Waco and. The movie God's Not Dead ran here for like this just interminably long period of time. Right. 
And there is this, you know, strange contradiction between it being somewhat of a university town, right? And the movie doing, yeah, Baylor, we've got a great community college system here that's linked to uh, several other institutions not that far away. We've got Tarleton. Anyway, there's a lot of institutions of, of higher learning here. Right. And, and basically a movie that says all those institutions are complicit in the devil's work, essentially, unless they yeah. are explicitly evangelical Bible colleges, basically. Right. So there's just this contradiction of terms. Uh, now, obviously, Baylor is Baptist, so that dulls some of that a bit in terms of the contradiction of terms. But, you know, like while I may teach any number of things in the classroom, the last thing I'm going to ask anybody to do is like denounce their faith or like you know, say that you have to leave that at the door in order to make your arguments. And, you know, and I have friends that, that work at very large state universities and like not once have I ever told them or heard them tell stories that would be anything close to, you know, this sort of narrative, right. That, that gets placed on the academy and institutions of higher learning. Yeah. But that goes back to, right. The, I mentioned the Gary North conspiracy book, right. And one of the things that he is very clear about is that he believes that university professors are attempting to rewrite history in order to rewrite Christians out of history. That that's part of the conspiracy. Yeah. Wow. So I need to skip these last four that I have written down for the interest of time. I'll just say them. Fossil record, various conspiracies. T- two options here. One, that the devil himself planted them to deceive you. Another, that they are Chinese fakes. That's in, there's got an interesting global component there. I know you really want to talk about these, Sam, but we don't have time to talk about that. Oh man, yeah. I know. I can see you're chomping at the bit. Uh, FEMA building camps to detain Christians. There's another uh, guillotines version that I read. A broader thing that science can't be trusted, uh, and there's all kinds of versions of that. And then, of course, credit card technology, mark of the beast. Anytime uh, some Dave new, Ramsey argument, some new uh, <laughs> Dave Ramsey. Pro, no, was no pro- he did. Oh, he's he, there's there's a, a weird meme that goes out around ascribed to him okay. about like avoiding ca- like avoiding cashless societies. Okay, but it's not really him. It's not. Okay. No, he is okay. not forwarding yeah. that. It's in, this is yeah. a perfect example of the way that conspiracy theories work, though, right? You find somebody like Ramsey who would talk about savings and being cash. And he uses a cash uh, system, but that's just for accountability. We we read his book when we were getting out of debt when we first got married. And he says, keep cash in envelopes so you only spend the cash. That is not the same as cashless payments will be the mark of the beast. Yeah. You but know, it's only a skip away. Right here yeah, and right. then – and then move move through the links. That is funny. Okay, well, but here's one that we – so I just want to make sure we get through the timeline of your own yeah. piece and get all the way to Trump. So birtherism brings us much closer to Trump. Now, he's a major proponent of this theory that Barack Hussein Obama – they love saying his middle name because it's a, it's an Arab dog whistle – was not born in the United States. And, but not only that, that he's secretly a Muslim. I saw a bunch of these memes around that. He was put his hand on a Quran instead of a Bible that was wrapped in a Bible. So he wasn't really swearing on the Bible at his inauguration. He put up Muslim prayer curtains in the white house, which I don't, whatever. I don't, are those even a thing? No. Okay. I've never heard of that before. (laughs) They have uh, rugs, mats, 
Yeah, actually, this is what my first book is is on. Actually, is um, on the Christian rights responses to Obama. Oh, interesting. Uh, I will put a link to that book. What's it called? Rhetoric, race, and religion: Barack Obama, the War on Terror, and the Christian Right. I may okay. have got one of those things out of order. Uh, whatever. It'll it's in the notes. People can figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> but so birtherism. So Trump's a big big part of this. This is uh, much closer to home. A lot of our parents and in-laws and aunts and uncles and friends got on this train during Mm -hmm. Obama's presidency? Well, yeah. And um, so the aforementioned Joseph Farah and WND are the website that that really takes off. And you've got Jerome Corsi, Janet Folger Porter, who claims to be the author of the first abortion heartbeat bill in Ohio, was very cozy with Representative Steve King. By the way, WND is World News Daily, right? Uh, yeah, I think Something so. Something like that. Okay, go yeah. on. And then you've got Dinesh D'Souza, yeah. who was uh, the president of King's College and is kind of a – was a conservative darling, was later pardoned by President Trump for campaign finance violations. Gosh. Um, Wonderful people of Christian character. Yeah, <laughs> well, you get this group of people uh, and they produce this movie. And it's like, a, you know, you can watch it on YouTube and it's this sort of long form explanation of how Obama's mother, you know, travels from Kenya to Hawaii to get a fake birth certificate. And this very strange, like she's cunning and devious. And, uh, and why would, what is her motive for that at that point? Well, so this is the thing that is so fascinating about this particular conspiracy theory. Is that, you know, the the goal was always to take over the United States. Oh, but my she's, gosh. She's weirdly cast as, like, trying to escape a black Muslim man, right, and being weak and afraid, but also so cunning that just after giving birth, she could travel literally halfway around the world and has a doctor lined up to forge this birth certificate. So, I mean, there's... Well, you basically, if you, so if you are willing to combine birtherism with some kind of apocalypticism or satanic element, then it clicks in, in terms of, well, yeah, the devil has the resources to make sure this gets going. Whereas an an average human couldn't have made that work. So the, my conclusion within the book is essentially like, we are spinning into a normalization of eschatological politics. Yeah. And that that's bad precisely because politics is at its best is about community building and about future building and about coalition building. Right. But if the end is coming or you are preparing for the end times or the kingdom on earth, depending on whether you're pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, all of these, you know, right. Different types of dispensationalism that, I, you know, would take forever to sort out, (laughs) but if you're so inclined to that, right, the will to do politics in a cooperative way is not going to be there. And don't we see some of that in a lot of Trump's more fervent supporters, especially like these more charismatic folks who really like, if you think the end is coming, then Trump's moral failings are just not nearly as important because that's the past. Anyway, that's not the point. Like Trump is not here as God's man to like bring revival. Trump is here to bring an end. 
He's a strong yeah. man to end this shit. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's a certainly a stronger emphasis once you get to that point, right? And there, you know, people compared him to Nehemiah or they compare him to David as a, a flawed vessel, right. et cetera, et cetera. You know, that King all, Cyrus. Yeah, that there's these flawed kings in the Bible that are bringing about this, but they're doing it for a purpose or for a prophecy or to fulfill a prophecy. Yes. Which is different than to bring about moral or like awakening renewal. Like it's not revival, you know, it's like God's got to do something and needs a certain kind of man to do the job. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's interesting. That's some of the attraction, right? So I think if you are predisposed to, dispensational rhetorics or uh, sort of an eschatological view of religion. And I mean, we talked about Pat Robertson, like the number of times that man has predicted the end of the world. Right. And you see that it seems, or we talked about even LaHaye, right. With his school of eschatology at Liberty, right. These things seem fringe or they seem like you're making an argument where like a lot of folks are not necessarily going to take that seriously, but it's not that many steps away from the mainstream, right? Which is the way in which we can be, you know, taken in, I think, in conspiracy theories or any number of other things. And it's not to say, like, I know that, you know, there are folks who who have a a functioning belief, I suppose, in, in, in the end times and those sorts of things. Not all of them believe this type of politics, but the rhetoric can easily lend itself to those kinds of politics. And there is some evidence. I found an article that links end times thinking and similar conspiracy theories. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't say there's a ton of evidence, but there's some evidence that you see some crossover there. You know, correlation is not causation. Who knows which way that goes? But I want to understand, I want to make sure before you have to go that we understand your argument here. And you're arguing that Trump offered himself to Christian conservative voters as an antidote to the America that declined under Obama. So obviously people who are into birtherism would already know Trump. Like that would be an easy sell though. Those are probably his, like the first Christians to get behind him were the ones who were already invested in birtherism because they would have, heard him on the Fox talk shows and all this stuff. But what about people who weren't already specifically into that particular Obama era conspiracy theory? How do you think that his use of conspiracy theories works to convince them to give him the nomination or, or the vote the general election or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's this, there's a bunch of things that kind of roll into one. The first is having so many Republican nominees in the primary. I don't well, remember yeah, sure. How many folks remember, like, there are a lot of people. Yeah, 19, I think uh, it started with, yeah. So, like, he didn't have to debate necessarily up front, which I think was a, a big help to him. Sure. But you already have, right, like I talked about WND, and that, that website is is huge at the time. But you also yeah, have millions like, of the, daily impressions, right? Right. And by the way, Farah, Joseph Farah, the guy that ran that, his daughter was one of Trump's press secretaries. Hmm. So. But you still got to get like, I'm trying to get us to 74 million Americans right, voted for right, him right, again right. in 2020. And 
76% of white evangelicals or something like that, 78%. Right. So if you look, Dinesh D'Souza put out a movie that was like Obama's America, right? And he had written this book. The book hit the New York Times bestseller stuff. So there's obviously a lot of people that are buying into this. He's got academic credentials. He's got religious credentials. He's worked in mainstream conservative circles for a long time. And the movie does pretty well, right? So in the run-up to the election, he releases, you know, Hillary's America, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's very, the imagery, if you look at even just the movie posters, right, is it's very fiery, it's dark, it is eschatological in its imagery, right? And there's this sort of, I trace it back, at least this iteration of it, to... George W. Bush and his sort of use of religious rhetorics as the primary means of communicating with, with the American people. Hmm. Right. So we've had presidents who use religious language. We've had presidents who are very religious themselves. Well, including like Jimmy Carter. Yeah. You think Eisenhower or Jimmy Carter or, you know, right. Carter still leads a Bible study in in Georgia. Right. Yeah. He shows up to his presidential library and is happy to hold court and pray with people. I mean, anyway, but Bush begins to use that language in a very interesting kind of way to talk about trusting his gut and trusting his instincts. Hmm. And those instincts are largely informed by prayerful consideration of something, right? So his image being tied up in this sort of evangelical mindset, and he opens up, he opens up the floodgates for faith-based initiatives in terms of federal funding and attaching federal funding to faith-based initiatives. And that plays into the parallel institutions because all those, the biggest of those parallel organizations now have, uh, for instance, we can get a hundred million dollars for purity culture, abstinence education, or, you know, so there's all kinds of incentives for those, anybody with a media arm to like go all in because they're going to double their budget. Right. So all of a sudden as that progresses, right. And Obama is on the horizon. A bunch of these folks are panicking that they're not going to have that level of support, that level of funding. Um, Francis Fitzgerald wrote this amazing history of evangelicalism called The Evangelicals. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's like 750 pages or something. Yeah, yeah. If you read the last chapter or two, though, she really maps out this relationship very well and talks about the people that are in the room, Hmm. you know, and the way that some of this is happening. You know, and the other thing to note is that people, some of the people involved in drawing up the RNC platform are people like Tony Perkins, right? Family Research Council, right? And so you've got yeah. weird blending of language and you've got a weird blending of funding. And then you've got the sort of mistrust, uh, I would say, to put it mildly, where many Americans are not sure what it means to have a black president. Yeah, I was just going to throw that in the mix. Yep. And then you have... And then he's a liberal Christian, if he's a Christian at all. And actually, if I could add something from my own upbringing, and this is really big in the eschatological stuff. So I remember it from what I was taught in Christian school, but then I also encountered it when I rewatched part of A Thief in the Night or A Distant Thunder, 
I don't remember which one I was watching as part of that research. And there's a scene in one of those movies after the rapture happens where there's a radio call-in show and a guy calls in and says, I know what happened. And they say, how do you know? And he says, well, I was like a liberal Presbyterian minister and I didn't believe it, but I knew enough to be able to tell you now what I missed. And in that sense, to be a liberal Christian was kind of worse because it was like, you're a traitor. You're not just an enemy. You're an you're apostate. Like, you're an apostate, basically. And it was one of the reasons I couldn't admit to myself for many years that I was a liberal Christian, even though I was already one theologically, was that I had anxiety around that in my 20s. And so there's there's some link there as well with Obama, who, yeah, he goes to this church or whatever and says he's a Christian or whatever. But that's liberal Christianity. That is maybe worse than secularism. It's more problematic than that, though. I mean, it, it because one of the ways that Obama's campaign was almost der- derailed was the release of the Jeremiah Wright tape. Right. Right. So Wright comes on and, you know, they, they cut it and they take away the context of the sermon itself where he's talking about imperialism and colonialism and destroying the earth and any number of other things. And people, he says, you know, famously, people say, God bless America, but no, God damn America. And he offers this like really stinging imprecation. There's a couple of things to note here. One is he cribs part of the sermon from a 1955 MLK sermon. Mm-hmm. So it's not even like late King, like readers. Yeah, it's early King. King. Yeah. It's like, yeah, early Martin Luther King. Most people didn't bother to contextualize it that way. The other thing that happens is the vast majority of white folks, whether Christian or not, are not literate in black liberation theology. Uh, of course not. And one of the one of the huge things that happens, right, is that Obama ends up distancing himself from his church and his faith tradition in such a way that like there's a vacuum. He can't even claim Christianity in the same way. Because so many white voters did not recognize black Christianity, not just liberal Christianity, but black liberation theology as Christianity itself. And you've seen this during the Trump administration with the the ban on teaching critical race theory, right, Uh, is tied up in this. But by the time that Obama gets to his inauguration, he's got Rick Warren giving the prayer. You know, he he tried. He really tried. (laughs) Well, this is one of the things that Fitzgerald lays out. He invited more evangelicals to like planning and strategy sessions as he's kicking off his. Yeah. His, you know, after he gets elected and all these people know that they're going to have to work with him, he invites all these folks. And there's just sort of an out of hand dismissal that he's ever going to do right by them. Wow. To me, that's, I mean, one of the. One of the biggest social divides in the United States is that religious segregation drives racial segregation and vice versa. Hmm. I believe that. And I think we saw a lot of people that were very scared of Obama and were willing to believe just about anything about him. Right. Like, like I said earlier, 12 percent of Americans believed that he was the Antichrist. That's insane. Almost 20. And the number was very consistent in terms of birtherism, that it was almost 25% of Americans steadily. And it's still something like 20, 20% of Americans still believe that he wasn't born in the United States. 
So, okay. So let me, let me try and operationalize this for Trump. And you tell me if I'm right here. It's not so much that all 30 or 40 million evangelicals, whatever it is that voted for Trump twice. It's not that we're describing all of them. All we have to do is describe how Trump got ahead up in the field of crowded candidates in the primary. And then once he gets the nomination, then this stuff comes into play, but in a softer sense where they just can't imagine supporting a Democrat. But it's not like they necessarily were birthers or whatever. It's just but that early chunk of support for Trump from people who were Christian and could have supported Ben Carson or Ted Cruz or something like that, that Trump's more direct conspiratorial rhetoric, the people who are, let's call it on the the more bleeding edge, 40% or so of the white evangelical population, the, the 20 to 40% who are more down the rabbit hole, he speaks to them directly. And that might only be 10 million, 15 million people. It's not 40 million people, but that gives him the necessary leg up to secure the nomination eventually. Is that kind of more of the argument in terms of the mechanics? Yeah, I think there's a big part of that, right? And I think if you spend eight years demonizing somebody the way that Obama was demonized, that the inverse, right, then becomes the the solution that you need. So Whereas, you, you know, Rubio specifically calling Obama out is just not – it's not enough gas. You, no. you actually want the anti-Obama and Trump is by every metric the anti-Obama. Well, and he crafted himself as such, right? Like that's a persona. I mean he had the you're fired persona. He had the sort of WWE persona that he had put on, yeah. a real estate persona and all these things. But in his sort of – entry into politics, the persona was that he was going to be the solution to all of the problems that had been created by Obama. And many of those problems, right, if you think about like the Affordable Care Act and the way that people talked about death panels and they're going to kill our grandparents and all this stuff, right? Like all of that stuff, even if you didn't believe in it, but you're prone not to vote for Obama or not to vote for a Democrat, if you change the the media ecology and the rhetorical environment just by hammering away for so long, right? If you go yeah. back through and read like the National Review's assessment of Obama's second inaugural speech, which is like a very middle of the road generic inauguration speech, you've got mainstream commentators calling it the most divisive uh, inaugural speech ever given, right? There, there's no attempt to reach across the aisle. Hmm. And you even have folks like John McCain kind of jumping in and piling onto this. You know, I've been in politics for decades and I've never heard anything quite like this. You see the needle moving in terms of the the sort of cultural temperature of how it's acceptable to characterize disagreement or characterize, uh, you know, we got this piece of legislation, but we didn't get that piece of legislation. It changes pretty radically. Um, And if you if you get people accustomed to that, right. You can move all the way up to last week where you've got, you know, armed people breaching the Capitol and then in the aftermath of it, people trying to make sense and going, well, how did we get there? It's like, well, it's, you know, I saw this meme. It was like, well, it's steadily built up for four years. It's like, I would argue it's steadily built up for at least 12, if not. Yeah. 
20 in terms of the way that we talked about the war on terror and the commissioning of that war as well, which is a whole another ball of wax. Uh, so Sam, we can end here, but I, I just want to connect a couple threads that are in my mind right now and see what you think, especially as someone who uh, you're a rhetorician and you pay so much attention to the language and stuff that these figures use. So Trump, as I understand him, is kind of the the all-time greatest American example of field testing phrases and messages live with his audiences and then just constantly doing a calculus of what kind of stuff is working. He's like the king of immediate feedback for political rhetoric in a way that even a daily radio host can't quite do. They're basing it on how many calls they get in or emails they receive. He's just like taking the crowd's temperature. He does it on Twitter. He does it at rallies, whatever. So if that's the way that he is, and if this other thing is true, which I just listened to a great interview that John Ward did on the Long Game podcast about how one of the causes for the insurrection, one of these long causes is that Republican politicians, their MO for getting elected and not getting primaried out is to tell their voters what they want to hear, whether or not that is the truth. That's true for most politicians. <laughs> sure. That's probably true in general, but that the particular culture on the right as it gets more and more divorced from reality, that becomes more and more of a problem. So you can have thousands of people showing up genuinely believing the election was stolen from them on literally no evidence, on only claims at having seen evidence that never materializes. So if those two things are true, one of them being that Trump gets this constant feedback from his crowd, number two, that a media landscape – increasingly divorced from reality, a lot of which of, of the Obama stuff sounds exactly like what you're talking about, like characterizing a very milquetoast middle of the road speech as the most divisive inauguration speech in history is the kind of thing that Obama hating readers want to hear, but is not true. Comparing it, you know, they, if you just compare it to other inauguration speeches is false. Then you throw in what we're talking about is this, not everybody, but large enough population of conspiratorially minded Christians. And then, so you drop Trump into that mix and he very quickly figures out the phrases that these voters want to hear from him that telegraphs that he is the man for them, that he is on their side in their holy battle or whatever, whether or not he of course doesn't believe any of that shit, but he just figures out more quickly than Ben Carson figures out or Ted Cruz figures out or any of these other people figure out the phrases you need to say for these people. That was long winded, but I'm trying to put those three things together in a, in a kind of a, a model. How does that model hit you? Yeah. Well, I mean, Trump has this, you know, I, somebody asked me about this and I, I said, you know, well, he's a perfect cross between PT Barnum and Joe McCarthy. Right. So he's got the showman, ship aspect down to it where he can do that thing. He can turn the phrase. Yeah. Now, and the phrases, they don't really have to be all that novel or that interesting. In fact, some of the more insidious phrases that were pulled from pre-World War II isolationist type stuff, right? Uh, America first, or just going back. I mean, we were talking about the formation of the Christian right, you know, the beginning of our conversation and the moral majority and talking about 
there's any number of those Falwell speeches that you're talking about where he talks about, we have to make America great. And it's so close to what ends up being, you know, kind of the catchphrases or the key terms that cognitively you're, you're hitting on just a close enough thing that it permutates, right? Or like the way that Trump invokes the phrase law and order, right? And he's going to be the law and order president. He is cribbing that directly from Richard Nixon, right? Right. Like, so you have, you know, generations of people that when they hear something, they, they, they jump at that thing being something that they recognize and something that can be packaged and turned around in another way. So I think the other part is, you know, especially for conspiracy minded folks or even folks who are adjacent to that, but not fully buying into that. One of the things that Trump did really well was branding himself as an outsider. Yeah. Which is one of the things that made his presidency so difficult to sort of process because at the same time that he's saying he's an outsider, he's draining the swamp. He, you know, he doesn't play by other people's rules. He's making the claims that the institutions which he controls are against him. Right. So there's this sort of, well, if you, if you are the president of the United States, can you actually be an outsider? Right. That's an interesting question. And I don't know, to me, it seems like you're pretty mainstream if you made it to the top. If you made it to the top, um, yeah. Yeah. It's like your favorite band that you knew when they were indie all of a sudden, you know, hits the big time and is selling platinum and it's 80 bucks a ticket to get in. All of a sudden you're like, uh, I don't think they get to be you know, the, the indie darling anymore. Or, you know, a directors who, whose films go from art house into, okay, now I'm getting $80 million as a production budget for a movie. You're not on the outside anymore. Yeah, you're no longer – by definition, you're not an outsider. Well, Sam, I, I think we need to – we got to – I hear your baby crying on the baby monitor and I've already kept you about 15, 20 minutes over. So uh, anything else you, you want to say to wrap up here? No, no. I, I enjoyed the conversation. There's, Me too. I still feel like there's uh, you know, oh. out and stuff we could talk about. But- totally. Uh, I hope it was helpful and uh, I hope it was your, your listeners enjoy the conversation. I appreciate it, man. I know they will. Thank you. All right. Thanks for having me. Just sounds like anything could happen, huh? Like maybe this music makes me feel like maybe Trump does have a dossier on a secret cabal of pedophile senators. No, this is what music can do. When you watch those crazy YouTube videos that, you know, your aunt sends you or whatever, they use music like this to great effect. It has emotional impacts on anybody who watches it, unless you're completely cynical like me. Anyway, okay, thanks to Josh Gilbert for the quick turnaround on this edit because this was a topical episode and I asked him to give this to me in two days and he did do that. Josh, you're the best, the best editor, a guy, a podcast guy could ask for. He's available for more podcast editing work. His email is in the show notes and uh, all the stuff I mentioned in there with Sam will be in those notes. So go read some more, follow those links and we'll see you guys next week for episode 101, which is actually the hundredth episode celebration episode this week is not that because we had to talk about conspiracies all right be well